Good morning. Welcome everyone again to River Valley Community Church. Welcome home family. Um, we are passing, passing the offering right now because when you change the order of service right before service, you forget details like that. So um, I blame Ted. So <laughs> no, I'll take, I'll take blame. <laughs> So thank, uh, thanks to everyone for being here for worship. We are continuing our journey through the book of Genesis. Uh, last week we had just um, started the flood account and about Noah and the ark as we all uh, know that story and we're going to continue and see how that resolves and how it goes from there. But before we do, if you join me in prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for who you are. A God who reveals himself not only through creation, where we can see your power and your might, but through your word, where we can see your character, your plan, and your love. Lord, we pray for this time as we open up your word, as we dig in to how you reveal yourself through Genesis, that we can know you more, love you more, and see how we're called to respond to how you save us. Lord, we love you, we seek you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We love second chances, don't we? I mean, I know I really do. I love second chances because I need a whole lot of them. We love second chances, the ability to try again, to get the right this time. In fact... The only reason I can stand before you today is because of second chances. This is, I mean, I, I actually debated whether to share this or not, but the fact that I'm a pastor today is because of second chances. I, I was a pastor at another church, and it didn't go so well, and I was let go, and, and there was a time when I was questioning whether I was even supposed to do this, and I found my way to River Valley. Casey and I found our way to River Valley uh, eight years ago, over eight years ago, and it is a second chance to step into ministry and help lead people know the Bible. So I really like second chances. And I'm betting all of us have those stories where we're looking back on our lives and we're like, man, we really like second chances. Maybe those small things where you like second chances, like you try to tell a joke and it didn't go well. And you're like, man, if I only had the chance to do that again and really get that punchline right, it would be really great. Or maybe this is a time when you put your foot in your mouth. And you're like, man, I'm an idiot. I really wish I could just have a second chance to say that again in a better way. Or maybe some medium kind of things we wish so we could have second chances about. Maybe if I just had a second chance to pitch that deal again or try to make that sell again or if I had that ch second chance to maybe ask out that girl again, maybe it would just go better this time, and I wouldn't blow it. We like second chances. Maybe we even think, can think of those big things we want second chances for. If, man, if we just could go back and get that second chance at college, I wouldn't be a goofball. Maybe I could get that second chance to go back and do that relationship right, or like second chance to go back and invest in that relationship as I should. We like second chances. Because humanity always needs 
second chances because we mess up all the time. And that is where we left humanity last week with the flood. That God looked at humanity and saw that the, the tenor of humanity's heart was towards evil continually, constantly in all his ways. And so he, he brought the flood to wipe out humanity, but he saved, he found, uh, Noah found grace and favor in the eyes of the Lord, and he saved Noah and his family. And now when we pick up the story in chapter 8 of Genesis, we see that humanity gets a second chance. And so if you have your Bibles... You can open up to Genesis chapter 8. If you don't, don't worry, it's going to be on the screen. We're going to read chapter 8 in a, in a chunk of 9 and discuss it a little bit as we go on. So chapter 8 of Genesis says this, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heaven were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. In the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat, and the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him any more. In the six hundredth and first year, in the first month, in the first day of the month, the waters were dried from all the earth, from off the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the twelfth, seventh day, 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wife with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, and they may, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his son's wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Then Noah built, on, built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, sea time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, dry and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And I, and as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life that is its blood. 
for and for your lifeblood I require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man by man shall his blood be shed. From God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Then God said to Noah and his sons with him, Behold, I established my covenant with you and your offspring after you and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast on the earth with you, as many as came out from the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, This is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, and it should be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the water shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is a sign of the covenant that I have established between me and of all flesh that is on the earth. We see in this account of Noah and the ark, where after the flood, we see God almost decreating his world. And now we see almost a recreation event in Noah. And when you look at the language that we see in Genesis 8, it's really reminiscent of Genesis 1 and 2 about how God created the world in the first place. Now he's pulling out the animals and sending out the animals and the humans from the ark, and we see a recreation event. He tells them even the same command, be fruitful and multiply. And he speaks that to humans, and he speaks that to animals, and they're supposed to recreate the world as they come out of this ark. And so we see that humanity in the world is given a second chance. We see this second chance happen where humanity again is set at the top, where all the animals are now going to be food for humans, where they should fear him. And again, we see these patterns that are reminiscent of Genesis 1 and 2. We see creation made anew. And also we see Noah's first response to what God has done. We see Noah's first response to the grace that God has given him and saved him through the flood. And what is his first response? He builds an altar and he offers an offering to God. I love that because I think when we read this, right there we have something that should should strike a nerve in us, in our minds, and say, so often in our lives, we don't have that same tenor of the heart of Noah that when things happen in our life, what is our first response? Usually it's to post on Instagram. Maybe it's to post on Facebook. Maybe it's to tell your friends. Maybe it's to, to share in this good news of what God is doing with other people. But how often is our first response to turn directly back to God and say thank you and worship him in that? 
How often when things go bad is our first response to complain to our friends or to badmouth people or to wallow in self-pity and misery when really Noah's teaching us here that our first response is to turn our gaze back to our Lord and even worship him in the confusing times. And so I love this because we learn so much about how we should respond to our lives just from Noah's simple act that the first thing he does when he steps down off the ark is he praises and worships God. And God establishes a covenant between himself and Noah and all the animals. Covenant is this, is this agreement between two bothered parties, parties, but when God does it, it's this sovereign agreement when God says, I'm going to bring you into a relationship with me, and there's going to be some requirements, and there's going to be some, some interactions in this relationship, but I decree how it's going to be, and I'm going to make sure it happens. And we see God instituting this covenant with himself and Noah saying, never again am I going to destroy the world like I did. And it's not because humanity is better, because he says, even now, evil is in humanity since their youth, since they are young. So it's not because humanity is better, but he just says, I will not do this again. That now you have your second chance, and we're moving forward. And he shows the sign of his covenant by putting the rainbow in the sky. Now, I don't think this is the first time a rainbow ever shown on the earth, but I do believe he takes something that happens in, in the world and says, see this? This is the sign for me. When the clouds darken and when rain starts to fall, have no fear, for I will never again wipe humanity by the flood. It's a sign that he is never again going to do this like that. But it's also a sign that points to the future of the gospel. I love how the Jesus Storybook Bible, which is this kid's Bible that I read to my son so often, puts it. Because when we look, think about bow, what we just think about the rainbow, right? It says a bow. It doesn't ever call it a rainbow, but it says he puts his bow in the sky. But that word bow is really pointing to, it looks like a bow and arrow, doesn't it? A bow. And so, I love how they put it. It says, like a warrior who puts away his bow and arrows at the end of a great battle, God hangs his bow in the sky. Everything would go wrong again. History would repeat itself, but God had a better plan. Not to destroy the world, but to rescue it. To rescue the world by sending his son. God's anger against sin would come down once more, but not on his people or world. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at his people. It is now pointing to the heart of heaven. I love that because it makes us think of this sign of the covenant in a new way. That it's promising that his war bowl has been hanged up. And now it points to the heart of heaven, kind of hinting at how God would save humanity through his son. And so humanity is given a second chance and God enters into a new relationship through, with humanity through Noah. But I love how this recreation event shows us God's nature. It shows us who God is. That God is committed to salvage operations. Salvage operations. I love that because when we use salvage, what is salvage? It's taking something that is old, kind of worthless in its present state, 
but making it new. We use it when we take old barn wood off of a, a structure and now make it, um, you know, what's it called? Chic or something like that. You can, you can watch HGTV and you'll see this. People salvage things, right? They take things that are worthless in their present state, but then they make them new, and because they make them new, now they're valuable, they're worth something. And that is God's nature, that he salvages humanity. He sees humanity in the pits of evil going away from him, and so he salvages out of humanity something on its own that is not good, and he makes it good for his purposes. That's his nature. And all of us who know Jesus Christ in our, heart, in our lives right now know this because that is what he has done for us. That God looked upon us before Christ when there was nothing valuable in and of ourselves and he chose to salvage the worst for his purpose. That he would enter into the sin rubble of our lives and pulled us out of that and restored us and recreated us for ministry and for him. God is committed to salvage operations and we see that here and we praise him for that because that is our story in Christ. That he salvages us. That God is in the business of recreating and we ourselves testify for that to that, that we are people of second chances, third chances, fourth chances, and on and on as God salvages us from our sin. But the story is not over yet. Because it continues in chapter 9, starting in 18, and you can read it through the end of the chapter. It says, And the sons of Noah who, who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay covered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. And Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards and did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from the, his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall be he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. And all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. We see in this that humanity is given a second chance, but humanity needs something better, deeper, more powerful than a second chance. For a second chance is good, but it does not solve the issue. For you can take humanity out of the sin-cursed world, but you can't take the sin out of humanity. For humanity was pulled from this world that was evil continually, constantly away from God, and they're given a fresh chance, and what happens? They bring sin with them. They're given a fresh start. They're given another try, and they still mess up. And we see this in Noah. 
Right at the get-go, we see how he is given this fresh start, a second chance, and he messes up. And I love how Kevin DeYoung says this in this book called The Greatest Story. He says, history was repeating itself again. Whether it was Adam or Noah, the first world in the beginning or the second world after the flood, people just couldn't get things right. The problem was that Noah was too much like the first Adam. He trusted God enough to build an ark when everyone laughed at him, but it turns out he could be just as foul as everyone else. He's pointing out that Noah, what does he do? He plants a vineyard, and he, he produces some wine, and then he gets drunk and lies naked, uncovered in his tent. This is like the height of shame at this time, that he was not just uh, having a good time with a little bit of wine, but he was in a drunken stupor, had no idea what was going on. He was blacked out in his tent. He was running away from his problems. He was ignoring God and how he was supposed to serve him, and he was just trying to escape. Sin had captured him again, and he was just as rotten as everyone else. Now, we can't get down on Noah. I mean, we can, but we shouldn't, because each of us can see that in themselves, that we're just as bad as him, that we're given a, ch- a second chance to follow God. We'll blow it again. On our own, we're just as bad as Noah. And when you look at Noah, we can even justify it. We can even understand him. Man, put yourself in Noah's shoes. He had just seen all of humanity, which includes his family outside of his sons and their wives, wiped off the face of the earth. He had just been stuck in an ark with smelly animals for 150 days at least, and then a lot of months later, waiting for the flood to escape. He, I mean, this was pointed out to me by, someone, by a, someone else, but he probably was suffering from PTSD, that he had experienced a traumatic event. He had seen people die in front of his eyes. He most likely heard the pounding on the sides of the ark as people were drowning. And of course, now he wants to forget it all, and so he goes to a little bit of wine. So we can't get down on Noah. He was old, too. Maybe he was just kind of tired. He said, hey, man, I have lived for so long. I don't even know what 950 years looks like. But he has lived for so long. I think they kept him in a shoebox at the end because he has just withered. That's not true. But I can't put in my mind someone living that long. And so maybe he was just tired and said, all right, maybe I just deserve a little bit of wine at the end of my life. Again, we can't get down on him because he illustrates the truth of who we are. That we don't just need a second chance. We need something deeper. We need something more lasting, more powerful. And we see this again in his son, Ham. I mean, he had the unfortunate, you know, life choice, I guess, from Noah being named Ham. But this is Ham, and what does he do? He sees his father naked in a tent, and he goes and tells his brothers. And when you read between the lines here, we see that he's not just like accidentally spying his, his father naked and telling his brothers, but he's, he's seeing his father naked, and he's kind of mocking him before his brothers. And they say, can you believe, Dad? Look how worthless he is. 
And that Shem and Japheth respond by taking the garment. And it's funny how it says a garment, but really when you look at the Hebrew, there's indications that it's actually the garment, maybe meaning that Ham had went into the tent, saw Noah was naked and took the garment as proof to his brother saying, look at dad, he's worthless, he's mocking him. And so Shem and Japheth respond with honor to cover up Noah's nakedness. But in Ham, we see this wickedness, this, this, this uh, tendency to mock our fathers, and this tendency to rebel against those who are over us and point out other people's sin rather than just looking towards ourselves. And so we see again that and Ham demonstrates that we need something deeper than just a second chance. And then we see in Noah's response almost a rehashing of Genesis 3, where there's blessings and their curses mixed up as Noah kind of prophesies and predicts what's going to happen now because of Ham and his action. And he points to him and says, Canaan, who is Ham's fourth son, is going to be cursed because of this. And that there's nothing good going to be coming out of that. And these are the people that Israel is going to eventually take over the promised land from. And we see this promise to Shem and Japheth because of their actions that there is this, uh, this promise that they will do well and their brother's descendants will serve their descendants. And so we have this rehashing of Genesis 3 with these curses and the promise. And it's funny, even in that, which we can be quick to read over, is a hint, a promise of the gospel. Because everyone's cursed. Everyone in humanity is cursed by sin and separated from God. But we get this promise with Shem, who, descend, who from Shem comes Abraham and comes the, the, the um, Hebrew people from Shem. And then from Japheth, we get these people who are, would be labeled Gentiles as they spread and they go further. But we get this promise that Japheth's children, his descendants, will dwell in the tents of Shem. And that never happened historically. That these people, these descendants, never came back and lived under the tents of Shem, and they never had Canaanites as servants and all this. It never happened historically. So what is going on here? I really think this is a foretaste, a hint of the gospel. That through the promised generation of Shem and his, and his descendants, which is where we get Abraham and God's chosen people, the Hebrew nation, that through them somehow the blessing would come and cover and the Gentile people can come back in under that blessing. And that is what you get in Abraham, who found favor in the eyes of God. Why? Because he had faith and so it's counted as righteous because he has faith. And now Paul and Romans speaks that all people who trust in Jesus Christ and have faith are descendants of Abraham. And so this is a hint, a foretaste of the gospel of everyone is being brought back and enfolded in the truth of who God is. And that today, the gospel knows no boundaries. That it doesn't matter who you're descended from, who you can count as your ancestors, but you're called back in and folded and grafted into God's chosen people if you know Christ and have faith and are counted righteousness because of that. That God salvages all of humanity through his people. And this points to that promise that we need to not just a second chance, but we now need a new identity, a new understanding, a new family. We need something deeper. 
We need a new heart, not just a second chance. When we read this account, I believe this is what's driving home to us. We need a new heart, not just a second chance. So often we think, man, if only I had a second chance, God, I could do it right, I could serve you well, I could get my life on track, but if give me a second chance, I'll do it all for you, and I'll do it how you want me to do it, and it'll be good, God. I trust me, I can do it this time. Put me in, coach. I can do it, Lord. And we mess up, and we'll stumble, and we'll fail, because we don't just need a second chance. We need a new heart. We need God to change us, to recreate us, to salvage us, to set us up anew in him. We need the truth of the word that the Bible continually proclaims that we need a new heart. We see this truth in Ezekiel 36, 26, when it says, and I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is the promise that God has been promising since the beginning, that he is going to remake you. He can recreate you. He can give you a new start that is not just a new a second chance, but something deeper, something more powerful, something more lasting. He can give you a new heart. But how does that happen? It can only happen through Jesus Christ. For we need Christ who takes all of our sin upon himself. We need Jesus Christ who gives us all of his righteousness. We need Jesus Christ who stands in our place. We need Jesus Christ who recreates us. As 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. We need a new heart, not just a second chance. And we find that in Christ. So what does that mean for us? It means that we need to know who we are. We need to know what we need and we need to try to, we need to stop trying to save our lives for an endless redo. We need to stop calling Mulligan and say, "I'm going to mess up. I am going to fail. I cannot be perfect right in here, right now, but I need someone who's going to do something inward with me. I need someone who's going to change me. History always repeats itself. If on our own, we'll try to do the same thing again and again in the same way and we'll fail again and again. We will not Get it right, and we need to realize that. And then we need to go to the God who salvages, the God who recreates, the Savior who makes us new. For it's only by running to Christ and trusting in him that we're given a new heart, that the sin cycles that we're bound to repeat endlessly through life on our own can be shattered and broken as he gives us a new heart that has new affections, that wants to pursue him, that wants to love him, that wants to be obedient, that wants to follow him all of our days. And so we run to Christ for that. And as we stumble and as we still fail, we continually run back to Christ to make us new, to salvage us, to put us on the right track, to save us. We need a new heart, not just a second chance. 
And it's only Christ who can give us one. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Where we can know the truth of how you save us. We can know the truth of, of the heart that you can give us to Christ. Lord, what, I, I thank you for your word of uh, uh, the story of the account of Noah that we can be reminded that it's not just a fresh start we need, but it's something more. And we find that something more in Jesus. That the story of Noah points that need, that lack, that we're waiting for something more, the Savior who changes us from the inside out. And so, Lord, we thank you for your word that we can know this truth. Lord, we thank you for your Son who brings us to us, the reality of, of this new life to us and provides that for us. So, Lord, let us live out that new life with boldness, with confidence, as we, as we pursue you and worship you all of our days. For all these things in Jesus' name.